Hey guys, Texas Slim here. Guess where I am? Can you see it behind me? <laughs> I kind of paused and tried to get in this position. I'm uh, back at Hometown Meets. It is uh, Friday right now and uh, the weekend and it's coming upon us. I'll be heading off to Nashville. Got my bags packed. Uh, and also I have 10 ribeyes that I'm taking. That's why I stopped by here. I got some ribeyes to take to everybody over at Bitcoin Park because we're having our micro summit next week. And I am on the road once again. Uh, was in Austin last night, spoke at the Austin Bitcoin uh, Club and basically at the Commons there in Austin. You guys need to get there if you've never been there. A lot of educational, a lot of good stuff. Uh, much to talk about coming up in the next couple of weeks. Tennessee, I'll be on the road. I'll take two, two and a half days to get there. I'm going to stop by and see a couple of people on the way that I've met throughout this journey. And I'm really looking forward to it. The time on the road is something I cherish. It's something that I want people to understand that we're doing, doing a modern day cattle drive right now. And, you know, everything that I kind of reflect on, I kind of put myself in the mindset of, uh, you know, the old cowboys doing a modern day cattle drive. And that's what I'm doing right now, man. I'm just doing it in a different way. I'm taking beef from here in Central Texas. I'm going to take it to Nashville to my buddies in Nashville, my friends that we're going to have a Tennessee Beef Initiative headquarters in 2023. This micro summit is going to be a playbook for all that. Today is Wednesday, or you're, as you're watching this, it is Wednesday. Remember, we're trying to get 100,000 people in here, into this Substack, into this podcast, everything. It is up to you. You guys are the ones that are driving this cattle drive. It is up to you to please share. If you find this valuable, you know, do what you do and uh, spread the word. Talk about it. And uh, But today, right now, why don't you go ahead and enjoy this podcast. It's about the cow. And of course, our very special co-host within the podcast, I am Texas Slim, Sean Johnson. She's a valuable asset to the Beef Initiative. So you guys enjoy the show. Hi, Slim. Hello, Sean. How are you? How are you? I'm good. I'm uh, standing right next to a, a old timey heater. And my legs are burning up and my ears are cold. I'm out here in the shop. Two days after Thanksgiving, second yep. day after Thanksgiving. Special day for you and your family, right? Yeah. Uh, Tell Nana. Us what today is. Well, Nana's, Nana's birthday. Okay. Go for it. Nana's birthday today is she turned 77. And uh, Nana is my mom. And she gets to spend it with her sons and her family and her beloved only grandson that she cherishes. So, and uh, I'm cooking them all steak. That's what so, people want to know. What's on the menu? We got a tomahawk ribeye, two other ribeyes. And I cooked myself a terrace major that I will be eating five ounces with one <laughs> scoop of butter. We'll talk about that at a later time. <laughs> yeah, at a later time. There's a reason behind it, though. So, right. But I'm going to let them taste that. Yes, it is. But uh, I, I'm, I'm bringing out all the stops. It's a coal, of course, loaded up. Every time I go down to Austin, I get a quarter of a cow I'm going to bring back. So we got all kinds of goodness. And we got like four or five. We got five freezers across the panhandle that I store beef in. So. So uh, I wanted to hop on here today, and uh, Slim and I have these fun conversations every Saturday. And it's really a shame that you guys don't don't get a peek in or be a fly on the wall because they go off in some strange, fun <laughs> directions. <laughs> yes, <laughs> they do. <laughs> we might go off the rails. Who knows? But let's find out. That's the fun of it, right? So be it. Yeah, I wanted to to point out that yeah, you know, it's you and I have been talking a lot about. First off, before I go there, because you're uh -huh. saying what's on the menu, ha are people strange around you when it comes to the food that they eat? Like, are they embarrassed to not have beef? <laughs> it's getting to that extent. If I walk into a room, I mean, it is hilarious, man. The conversation changes. It really does. <laughs> 
with my own family, they are par they're intimidated. <laughs> they feel guilty. Yeah, I, you know, I just take an example. After uh, Thanksgiving, you know, I I, I don't eat that weak ass bird, the turkey. That's what I call it. But anyways, <laughs> it's just kind of a joke. But everybody was all, you know, they they had their gluttonous day or whatever a holiday, you know, uh, consumption, and so. Everybody was really lethargic because, you know, we all go in separate ways, kind of, you know, we all come back together and they have to go, you know, see the nephews and all that. Anyways, everybody, everybody was lethargic. And here I am walking in the room, man, I'm working out. I'd had my beef for the day and all that kind of stuff. And people do, they, they seem intimidated these, these days. Every time I travel, you know, I've done, I think it's up to 34,000 miles this year. Every state across this nation, everywhere I go, people feed me beef and they will not. I mean, if they're not feeding me a steak, they're in trouble. And it's not that I'm demanding it. It's just like, well, we can't. Oh, we can't fuck this up. <laughs> Do they cover up their plate? Don't show slim chicken. <laughs> well, there's a funny story. First time I went to Tennessee, they took me to a freaking chicken place in Nashville. And I was just looking at them and they all, you know, ordering. And I said, I'll just have some water. I think I had a Topo Chico. And I just watched everybody. I didn't say anything. I just watched. Because yeah, I ain't eating that. Yeah. But anyways, it, it is it is evolving. It's going to be a story that I get to kind of tell, you know, moving forward. Because there is something there. Absolutely. Yeah. So can we get to what I've been dying to talk to you about today? I think it's, I, I've been waiting for freaking three years to start having these conversations. Well, check this out. So I wanted to start this conversation up. We're going to talk about the cow and how it's, it's, it's been venerated throughout history. There's something special right. about the cow. Whether we're insulting the cow or respecting the cow, consuming the cow or not consuming the cow, there's an interesting mm -hmm. story there. But I stumbled across divide and conquer you know that strategy that's been used for millennia to sure. conquer human beings and where i'm going with this is not some conspiracy theory <laughs> rabbit hole where i'm going with this is over time as we humans have managed to to divorce ourselves from nature mm -hmm. in the process we've managed to slowly conquer ourselves right and yes. we're not working in that symbiotic relationship with nature because make no mistake about it humans are a part of nature they can't possibly exist separate from it and where we've ended up is well 12 percent of our population meets the definition of optimal health and then the other percentage the 88 percent it's not looking good right diabetes non-alcoholic fatty liver you, you can list that that laundry list of chronic illnesses but the the most tragic part is and you and i talk a lot about this is that it's slowly seeping into our children yes or more children with type 2 diabetes and an old man disease non-alcoholic yep. fatty liver disease and and it all stems from our ability to separate out from nature and disease is happening within our body, mind, and spirit. So, long story short, I wanted to talk to you about the interesting relationship that the cowboy had with the cow. Sure. Yeah. I, was, I wanted to talk to you about horses, vicaros, and I was doing some research. Again, I'm a student. I should have my uh, TBI hat on right now, put my student hat on. <laughs> Yeah. But uh, it's my understanding that in these cattle drives, the cowboys didn't actually own the horses. Is that correct? But whoever owned the cattle was providing the horses? It kind of depended on, you know, of course, I mean, it goes so, there's too many hundreds of years of hit yeah layers of history there you know you look back at the you know conquistadors that came from you know mexico into texas and basically they they you know they, they a lot of the cowboy comes from the spanish descent from the conquistadors to cortez everybody that came over to texas 
uh, some of the first cattlemen and horsemen were Native Americans. The Spaniards taught them how to be a, a cattleman, a cowboy, as we know it today. But you go all the way back through Egyptian times, through Africa, through Europe, of course, to Australia, to South America, Mexico, into you know the United States. The cowboys meant a lot of different things, from the gaucho to the chilon to the uh, llanero. You know, that's all the South American from Brazil to Venezuela to Peru. You know, all the South American. There's always a little bit of cowboy that is derived from that. And so, whenever you get to the Texas cowboy, I think what we can really do is define it around the 1840s to the 1875s. That's whenever we were cracking that whip and saying this is going to be a cowboy and by saying that at the beginning you know how did we learn to ride horses so well well in texas the texas cowboy learned from the comanche and so uh at that time you, you needed a horse a lot of times you didn't have a horse so you became a horseman and kind of like the Comanche did or the Spaniards, because horsemanship comes from the Spaniards as we know it within Texas. So there's a lot of things that happen. But over time, the cowboy did not have a horse and he was provided that. He was just a workman. Is it is it true that the vicaros would come in and actually give the cowboy a break when they retired from riding <laughs> the horse? And at the end of that cattle drive they had the up when they got paid they had the option to buy the horse the vicero yeah hey guys now for a little story from texas slim you know i got plenty of stories i always like to interrupt a little bit i hope you find these kind of entertaining but also educational i look back at history and look at how we can basically respect and show honor to our ancestors there's not a day that does not go by that i do not think about my grandparents and my uh family of past and, uh, you know, it's, it's a great way to look back. One thing that, you know, as, as we talk about the cow in this week's podcast, uh, one thing that I always knew as a little child is I grew up two blocks away from the Panhandle Plains Museum. I think I've talked about it a couple of times on these recordings, but it was my babysitter. We could go there. We used to read the, the ledger of everybody that traveled from around the world. And they'd say, hey, look, these people came from, you know, England. These people came from Alaska. And it was always fascinating. But one thing that I did learn was about the Panhandle Plains and the cattle drives. And basically, who invented the chuck wagon? Do you know? It was Charles Goodnight. Charles Goodnight basically was one of the pioneers that, pioneered into the Texas Panhandle after the Comanche Wars. Uh, his if you look at the Goodnight Trail, do a Google search. It kind of goes around the Texas Panhandle up into uh, New Mexico. They had to do that because they were, when he started that cattle drive, they were still having wars with the Comanches. So they had to circumvent around Camacheria, which is the Texas Panhandle. It's where I come from. It's my roots. It's in my blood. So one thing I did learn about, how did they eat on the cattle drive? What did the cowboys eat? Who fixed their dinners? How did they maintain, you know, three to 600 mile trips on these cattle drives? Well, they had the chuck wagon and they called him Chucky. And old Chucky usually was, uh, he was older. He was old cowboy. Uh, usually cowboys on the, on the trail from 19 to 40 usually. They were young, young men, and they learned their uh, rite of passage on those cattle drives. They had to be nourished. Uh, usually on a cattle drive, what you had is you had Chucky. He'd leave out of San Antonio with a big old bill of goods. He'd have, uh, you know, plenty of flour back in the day, that good flour. He would have a sourdough maker. He would have, you know, some dried meat to start off with. He'd have some dried fruits. And uh, he had all the basics the necessities that where he could travel with a group of usually between 12 and 20 cowboys were on those cattle drives. These cattle drives probably usually consisted, I don't know, from a thousand, but it, as they got gone, you have about 2,500 head of cattle that they would drive, like I said, three to 600 miles. What they were doing is they were driving, the, driving those cattle, you know, up north. You know, we had Texas, we had plenty of cattle and, you know, Chisholm Trail, one of the very first uh, 
cattle drives that was ever, you know, uh, done. And it was done way back before the 1870s. But anyways, let's go back to what they ate. Old Chucky had a chuck wagon, and it usually was, you know, equipped to the T with everything that he would need to basically go on these cattle drives. And he would go and he would start, let's say, day one. He's going to get ahead of that herd several miles, and they would travel probably 10 to 12 miles uh, each day. And what he would do is he'd set up, he'd have a couple mules pulling that chuck wagon. He'd set up camp put up a tarp, put it up, it was pretty efficient, and then, you know, he would go to cooking, and, you know, usually think, oh, well, they had plenty of beef to eat, and then they're going to eat, no, that was the product, the cowboys didn't get to eat a lot of beef, they did every once in a while, but what they did is they ate basically kind of scraps, you know, they ate uh, lots of beans, lots of beans, you've heard that, so lots of beans, a lot of biscuits, uh, a lot of staples, that they they put together on those cattle drives. So Chucky would he would he'd usually go wake up about two thirty three in the morning. What he would do is he would get busy. But at time of you know the sun's coming up, it's time to come in. These guys, these cowboys would come in in shifts. He'd be hitting on that uh, you know that sunrise. You knew it was time to eat. So basically biscuits and beans. And, uh, you know, of course, cowboy coffee. You guys know what cowboy coffee? That's the only thing I drink. How about y'all? Especially me on the road, man. So all I do is I take my coffee with me. And cowboy coffee just got a lot of grains in it. You just heat it up, put it all together. You didn't have too many filters back then. So you just kind of chewed on it, nod on it a little bit as you drink it down. So good old cowboy coffee in the morning, biscuits and beans. And then you were off to go and uh Let's get on the trail again, another 10 to 12 miles. Here we go. Got to drive those cattle. Those cowboys had to stay nourished. They had to have that nutrition of the day, and they were healthy. You, can you imagine going three to 600 miles on a horseback? Well, they, they did it. It was their lifestyle. They loved to sleep under the stars. They loved to watch the sun. They loved their horses. They loved the style. They loved the lifestyle. There was something about everything that they were doing that got them closer to the earth have you ever felt that spirit when you're that close to the earth you ever been on your own modern day cattle drive well they'd sit there and they wouldn't eat lunch because they had to keep on working so chalky he would get out he'd feed everybody in the morning and then once again he'd get those mules going and he would go and get ahead of the herd he always traveled a little bit quicker than everybody else because he had to get up there he had to put his stakes in the ground again had to put his tart up had to get his uh basically he had probably about four dutch up too big, too small, of course, several coffee pots, and it was a continual thing. It was a continual movement, energy, continual energy. Had to keep everybody going. He would make, uh, he would make, you know, they had fruit trees, more, more in abundance, you know, back then, next to creek systems, all kinds of work fruit trees might grow he'd pick fruit he would stew up apples he would stew up any type of fruit uh he would get all you know blossoms off a of cacti there's a lot of things that he leveraged off the land he leveraged off the land to feed the cowboys he leveraged off the land to feed the cowboys does that sound familiar he didn't leverage grain companies he didn't leverage chemical companies he leveraged the land to feed his cowboys that's what we do that's the modern day cow cattleman cowboy both of them anyways so he would make all kinds of different things if he uh he came across any rattlesnakes plenty in texas i've seen a lot of them i killed one once in palador canyon it was probably six foot two i got a picture somewhere but it's buried anyways i killed another one i was out at the canadian river once i was riding my dirt bike and i took a picture of it and i made it look like it was biting me but it wasn't it was dead i put a toothpick in his mouth and make it look like he was you know, going to bite me. But anyways, people said, are you okay? Yeah, I was just messing with them. But that's a fun picture too. Maybe you guys will see it one of these days. Anyways, they would go, maybe a rattlesnake, maybe a possum, maybe an armadillo. I don't know. There's a lot of things that came through camp or maybe there was a deer or antelope. There was always some type of, um, I guess, protein that they would harvest on that cattle drive. So they were always being very creative with what they had at their fingertips. If a cow actually did die on the trail, well, they got the cutting, but they didn't need it right there. What they would do is they cure that meat. You ever heard of beef jerky? I eat it every day. That's all I do. I think there's, you know, I had a dream the other day. There was something called Texas Slim's beef jerky. 
And then I had another dream. It's at Texas Slim's Burgers. Then I had another dream. It's at Texas Slim's T-Bones. I don't know. It was a dream. I like dreams. I like to fulfill dreams. Anyways, somebody was walking up. I was making sure it wasn't, uh, oh, uh, Monty. He's a headed butcher here at Hometown Meats. Hell of a guy. You're going to be hearing about him. Anyways, on this trail drive, you know, what did they do? They lived off the land. So we can't do that as much in these trucks that we drive and these automobiles. But what we can do is we can plan. One thing that Chucky did do, he planned everything around food. He knew that he had to steward those cowboys. Because guess what? Those cowboys were stewarding that cattle. That cattle began to feed a nation. There was something about it that was called uh, a collaboration. It was called communications. You know what? There's a story about the Texas Rangers. They, they, they developed a form of communications back here in Texas, too. Still used to this day in uh, certain parts of our United States government. Do you know that? I'll tell you all the story sometime. But anyways, going back to how they ate on the cattle drive. That's a long ways to go, three to 600 miles, but they were always well-fed. They were better, better nutritionally sound than most Americans are today. Did you guys know that 88% of Americans are now metabolically compromised? 12% of us out there, folks, are in good metabolical health. I'll say that again. You guys do a Google search. 88% of Americans are now metabolically compromised. Do you think those cowboys were metabolically compromised? Do you understand the value of the cow? The cowboys did. Chucky understood that he had to take care of the cowboys. Cowboys had to take care of the cows. Cows had to take care of the land. Do you see see a pattern here? Okay, well, how do we transform that time? Let's do a little time travel. How do we get it to now? How are we going to make this nation understand that we're doing a modern-day cattle drive? We're taking care of our cowboys and our cowgirls. We've got our Chuckies. They're running the chuck wagon. We've got our cows. They're always doing what they've always done since the beginning of time. We've always worshipped them. We always knew the importance of the cow and how sacred they were. What has changed in our society that makes them to think that the cow is a hazard to us? Do you see something nefarious? I sure as hell do, and I'm fucking sick of it. Sorry about that. Sometimes that sneaks out. Anyways, you get the point. This story is going to continue. Modern day cattle drive is just beginning. I'm on my way to Nashville. I got 10 ribeyes here in the back. I have to bring those guys some good Texas beef ever I go up to Tennessee. We got to get some Tennessee beef going in 2023. We're going to go. We're going to have a micro summit. It is sold out. Anyways, I digress. Thanks for listening to my stories, folks. I love y'all. Now back to the podcast. Like, yeah, the vicarious. Sure, there's some history there that that is valid. Yes, uh, you had a lot of people. You know, I believe, like in Australia, you called the. You know, you had the buckaroo and stuff like that. So some people did take care of the horses. Some people did take care of the cattle. And over time, to be a true Texas cowboy, as I like to call it, is that you became a horseman and you became a cattleman. You became the ultimate cowboy. I mean, you put art into it you know it's fascinating what the the if you didn't all right cowboy the horse is a tool right together you work together to steward that cow along the cattle drives to make sure that cow was thirsty the cowboy was key in texas because they noticed that all the wild cattle that they had rounded up after let's say after the civil war that they noticed that one thing that was apparent that if they didn't steward those cows in the proper way was the number one thing was to make sure the calves had water. So they were always in search of water sources and they would drive those cows to those water sources. Okay. They had to have a good tool. Well, they had to have a good relationship with that tool and that was the horse. And so what they did is they became a bond. And the artistry that they put into that, because that's that was your working environment. That was your office, sitting on the back of that horse. So you had a relationship. You had a bond that was enough for that cowboy to not make money. All he wanted to do was to be outside, be underneath the stars, to have a bond with that horse, 
so they could actually truly worship that cow in a way that we hadn't seen in the United States, but we had seen come from South America, of course, which came from Spain, which, of course, in the very beginning came from probably Egypt over 8,000 years ago. What did the cow teach the cowboy? What did the cow show the cowboy? Sustenance. You know, it, it showed that, you know, you look at the bison, right? The range, the Great Plains across the United States for thousands of years, millions of bison. What they saw in the, uh, in the cow, and especially in the 1800s, is how they could take care of the land, how they could actually basically be part and be part of nature. They had to use the cow. The cow was a land tool. And they knew that. And they knew if they took care. A lot of people didn't consume a lot of beef before uh, the Civil War. They used tallow. They used the rawhide. They used a lot of things. They didn't really know how to utilize it. But the cowboy, yep, the, the cowboy, especially after the Civil War, whenever Texas started feeding the nation and they created the really the first cattle drives in the history of the United States, they, they realized that the 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 cow was sacred to their lifestyle, to their nourishment, to, to the land. And, you know, they, they, they learned from the Spaniards. They learned from the Native Americans. They learned from the bison. If you look at the desert high plains, which I am right now, the Llano Estacado, the Caprock, it is the end of the Great Plains. And some of this grassland here is the best grasslands in the world. It was an oasis. Well, how did it get there? Well, it started with the bison, and then, of course, it led into the cattle, and then it led into the Texas cattle drives. That's why the Texas cattle drives were so successful, is that they could go just like the bison did, and they could basically take care of the land. They could take care, and they were, they were something that they could leverage into basically having a means of energy, means of energy turning into a means of a monetary system in which they could live. And they could also feed, you know, themselves on the way. It was just a, it was a, it was teamwork. And a, a cowboy understands teamwork more than I've ever seen in my life. That's what a lot of people don't understand. But it's all centered around having the right tool, having your right horse, having the right, basically your ropes, everything that you use. But a, a number one thing is think about that. And I always uh, think about this whenever because I'm a metalsmith, you know, I'm a blacksmith, I'm a metal artisan. You look at metal. Usually, if you're a true metalsmith, you don't buy tools. You make tools with heat and steel, and you forge them, and you, you, you craft them. Well, you look at the cowboy. Well, he had a saddle. He had boots. He, everything that he basically owned came from the cow. So they utilized every part of that cow, just like the Native Americans did with the bison. And we learned a lot of that really from the Native Americans and the Spaniards and throughout history. It's been passed along. We've, we've lost that understanding. Multinational corporations now utilize the cow in ways that you know, nobody knows about. But it, uh, it's really not to a benefit to us anymore. Yeah, I mean, conservation is coming to mind. When it comes well, to Yeah, that's a good word. I mean. The respect for that cow and, and stewarding that cow and it's not it's almost like we've we've come to this ugly place where it's just kind of that rape and pillage <laughs> of this sacred mm -hmm. creature mm -hmm. that, that serves us and again in the process what happens disease sure we're not stewarding that cow like we once did well obviously we know some farmers that do mm-hmm but collectively, collectively as a, yeah, collectively as a society, we have been detached, and that is the that is basically the intentions. Uh, as you say, the, the further you get away from the seed of your energy, and one thing that you do realize is whenever you are stewarding animals and you're using the animals as land tools to steward the land, they are enabling you to basically start consuming the earth again. Any time in history that we have used the land tools to, to basically consume the earth is, is the healthiest, most spiritually sound, 
mentally sound, emotionally sound, financially sound as an individual, most sovereign you could ever want to be. If we have sovereign individuals these days, look out, you know, because, you know, our society creates a lot of dependencies, codependencies on, you know, multinational corporations, you know, divide you, get you separated, get you separated from that energy. Therefore, you become dependent. And you've seen it throughout the history of time. Some of the most powerful societies in history had the best relationship with the cow. And you could go back 8,000 years to Egypt. And what did they do? Well, the peasants didn't have access to those cows. But in, you know, in India, you know, you look at how sacred the cow is in India. You know, 80% of the Hindus, you know, worship the cow in a way. And so you really look at, uh, I think the sovereign individual of today, the closer they are to the cow with education, with consumption, with stewarding, with basically having a relationship, their life is just going to be better. Well, the, yeah, the 80% of the Hindus worship the cow, but so do the Christians and the Muslims there, but they, they mm-hmm. come at it from a different angle. Exactly. And um, that's really an interesting point you bring up because when it's, it's kind of the road to hell is paved with great intentions. Mm-hmm. You know, when you, you have this idea that we must now protect the cow and therefore cut off access to the consumption of the cow. And then you've got this other group who finds value in the nutrient density of the cow and the practicality that surrounds it. And you want to cut off that person's right to, to do that. Mm-hmm. that. That's happened throughout history. Sure. You have a religious idea. That religious idea gets repeated enough and it ends up entering into the legal system and policy is shaped around it. And uh, this all goes back to, and I didn't think the conversation was going to go here, but it's something you and I talk about a lot. This is a human rights issue. To be able to have our relationship with the cow in the way that we understand and to allow anybody to interfere with that is an injustice. You're damn right it is. I mean, it's it's the best nutrition in the world. We know that. It's been proven through it. The only reason we're here is because of that relationship with that cow. Well, what do you That's think it. in the U.S.? In the U.S., you hear things like dumb cow, fat cow. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of interesting how we've downplayed the cow. Cow's right. a carbon hazard. I'm not going to go there right now. It's a podcast for another day. Yeah. But, Again, it's kind of the way we speak about ourselves here in this culture, which is not very mm-hmm. positive. You know, it's often humans are a, a negative impact on the environment, like we're pests, like cockroaches mm-hmm. that need to be eliminated. <laughs> and yeah. we've done this with the cow as well. I think it's fascinating. You know, and I, I told you, my level of respect from the cow comes from the nutrient density of the cow. I mean, it's just superior to any other form of meat. I'm not against other, you know, high quality sources of animal protein. It's a high quality source of animal protein, but the bang for your buck that you get from a piece of beef, it's just night and day. And good, it's, it good is. Look for yourself. I, I don't need to tell you. I mean, the truth reveals itself. But I always like to bring that up, especially, I mean, let me bring up a point here. Okay. And I, you hear me saying Texas fed a nation. After the Civil War, after we were divided as a people and everything, and we were regrouping, we had to become powerful. Okay, a society had to get back on its feet. Well, the one thing that we did, and we truly did, is that Texas fed a nation. And by doing that, we basically, um, we when we fed a nation, in 18, I, we really started feeding the nation around 1878 as a whole. We got grouped in, we started doing things. But even right after the Civil War, we had to feed a nation and we found out and we accepted that the cow was the best way to get there. We hadn't consumed a lot of the beef before the Civil War, like I said. We used it for other purposes. But at that time, there was a no brainer. We had to use the cow as our energy, as our sovereignty, 
and we had to use it in a way that probably had never been done on the mass scale that we forwarded and we stewarded in the state of Texas. So if you say that, if that was our, think about that, the, the strength of a nation, if you know your history in the United States, started with Texas feeding a nation with the cow. It's that, you can't argue it. It's in the history books. The cattle drive started uh, basically something. We started driving cattle to the rail yards. They were shipped to Chicago, to, to New York, all across this nation. And we kept on going west as well. We went all the way up to Montana. We went all the way up to California. Those cattle drives were explorations of nutrition and feeding communities along the way. But something you brought to my attention that I wasn't really thinking about prior to meeting you is the intelligence of the cow. You know, mm-hmm. I really didn't think much about that. I, we have these ideas. We're born into a culture. There's prevalent ideas. You don't really think about where the ideas come from. They're just planted in your head. And then you begin parroting those ideas as if they're fact. So. Mm-hmm. You've given me a, just a, a newfound appreciation for, for the cow and its intelligence. And it's important yes. to help us navigate the land. Uh, you and, and, of course, you've worked with Will Harris. You know, I watched his interview, uh, is it 100,000 Beating Hearts, talking about the yeah. identifying the, the different weeds. And again, I don't want to go down because I'm, I'm still learning. But I, sure. I, I didn't realize the level of intelligence that the cow possessed. Well, I, nobody does. And it's fascinating. It's a deep, deep rabbit hole. And every rancher that I've talked to across the nation from Cole down in, you know, South Central Texas to Jason over in Colorado to Peter Allen up in Wisconsin to Justin and, uh, you know, holy cow and in Weldon Warren. Every one of them has a different story about the intelligence of the cows that they've experienced within their own environments, the different grasses, the, a, the benefits. What a fantastic podcast that would be. Yeah, it, let's get them all together, right? Yeah, let's get no, Will I, I want to hear too. it because I don't think people, and I'm just scr- scratching the surface here, I don't think people realize the depth to it. That's why I'm, I'm kind no. of this childlike, I'm very curious right now. I'm fascinated by it. Why have I been cut off from this information for so long? I mean, it's it's mind blowing to me. And I the thing that I've learned in, in getting to know you and all the different ranchers that we're working with is they they work in very different, you know, situations, different terrain, different climate. Mm-hmm. And they have to learn how to navigate that. And they're doing it right now. And they're utilizing the land tools that they have at their disposal to do that. And it's just fascinating. Well, you, you look at Cole Bolton down there in central Texas, out south of Austin. Okay. One of his, uh, I'd say, small ranches. He's got several that he <laughs> takes cattle to and from and all that. Yeah. But one thing about that ranch, nobody knows really about it. It, it is a big old dirt pit. Okay. Well, what do they, what do I mean? Well, they get dirt shipped in and they, they ship dirt out. But what they do, Cole puts cattle on that land. It's got weeds on it. Those cows go through there, they graze, and they know exactly where to find their protein. They know exactly what they need to consume. By doing that, whenever a, usually whenever you have raw soil, raw dirt, you, first thing that's going to happen is you're going to have all these weeds blow in, all the seeds come blowing in, and then you have a big old ugly field of weeds. Put cattle on it. Put cattle on it. Put some some new uh, natural grasses, native grass seeds on there. You put cattle on it, that whole dirt pit becomes a beautiful pasture of grass over a period of time because your land tools, the cow, is that intelligent to know how to basically weed out, you know, the, the destructive type of plants. And basically throughout time, those weeds go away. The cow consumes those weeds, turns it into protein for us because they have five stomachs. We consume that cow. So we're, we're actually rebuilding the soil along with the land tool, the cow. And then you look in a year or two, you have a grassland 
that was not wasn't there in the beginning. It was just raw dirt. That's the cycle, and you can say that in any place across the world, and that's what they're trying to hide from us. That they're trying to basically keep us detached with that form of intelligence, the intelligence of the cow, the intelligence of the stewarding of the land. You know, it goes back into carbon suspension stuff. We're not going to go there. The climate change crap. Not going to go there today. But there's so much deception that's going on that basically people do not have an idea where to start. And right there is a conversation. We can start with the source of the seed of the grass, the source of the seed of rebuilding new soil, the source of the seed of the intelligence of the cow, the source of the seed of what they do with those five stomachs, how they take those poisons and they turn it into something that we can consume and it gives us the best protein in the world. Well, nurturing the very environment that we have to live live in and yep. on and on. Yeah. Exactly. You just see the cycle of life. The cycle you get of life. So, you get so close to the soil to where you can consume the earth, but you use the land tools to be able to consume that earth. The best land tool in the world has always been the cow. That's why ancient societies have always worshipped the cow. They knew that their health, their spirituality, everything about them, from Hinduism to Buddhism to Christianity, across the board, they knew the relationship with the cow. You look at societies and religions and philosophies that never knew each other, every one of them, you look at the base layer of their belief systems, it has the cow within that belief system. Absolutely. And it's interesting when when the Western, I'm talking about the modern day Western diet that is completely divorced from nature, completely divorced from that cycle of life you and I were always talk about. We talk about that a lot. You know, when we start exporting that out, for example, these hunter-gatherer societies that are living in symbiosis with the land, we start bringing, you know, the white man's flower. And what happens? Yeah. The disease, the obesity, the, disease. All the, the modern yeah. day, modern day is the key word. Mm-hmm. <laughs> These things weren't always prevalent. Like, and you, well, you love to point out the images from pre-1970s to today. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's right there in front of our faces. The further divorced we become from the very land that sustains us, the very nature that we coexist within, whether we want to believe it or not, the sicker we become. And you know what? Adults, you have a prerogative. That's your prerogative. If you want to, if you want to consume poison, that's on you. And, and you, here's my thing. I don't want to deny anybody's right to consume poison. Where I draw the line is that poor kid that's born into that situation and they're looking to the, the elders to show them the way and they become compromised in the process. That's where it stops right now. That is where I'm so passionate about. They are helpless. And if people will take a second to say, to really reflect on what I just said, 100%, the innocence is destroyed. They are nothing more than just helpless victims. If you want to talk about victimhood, anybody, adults, we get over being a victim. That's that's our path. That's our journey. We all have been there. But a child, he is completely helpless. And you look at the cow and the history of the cow, and you look at the, the udder. You look at the milk of life. You look at how they nourish the baby. It's all through the cow because they knew that that was going to be the best chance for that baby's life to grow into an adult, to have that type of life that we all yearn and crave for, that happiness, that peace of mind, that, that basically that strength, you know, that joy. And what we do is we are, we are basically engineering a suffering on innocence that is helpless and the nation needs to start realizing the only way a child will be saved in the United States, if the adults step up and start listening, re-educating and getting back to the source of the seed of the history of the best nutrition in the world and how to be as close as you can with that. And you should allow the children to be as close as you can to that same nutrition, which is the cow. Amen. That's always been my mission from day one. Let's, let's end it with this. Slim, um, you've told me a story about, is it the four sixes? 
ranch. Yeah, I, the I know they're under yeah. new, new ownership now, but tell me the story about Yellowstone. Yeah, you're right. We'll Yellowstone production. Another day. <laughs> yes, we will. Tell me a little bit Anyways. about what happened when we gave the children access. Tell tell us the story. Sure. Well, you got the the county in which uh, the four sixes is, is is basically right in the middle of. It's the county square. Everything. It's in Texas. It's out close to where I live. Probably. Uh, 100 miles from here, 120 miles from where I sit right now. Four Sixes is one of the biggest ranches in the world in the history of looking at ranches. Anyways, I guess it was probably, I'll have to look at the dates, but not too long ago, what they decided is they said, okay, we're going to um, the independent school district there in the county, which everybody went to the same school, they said, we need to change something here. Let's develop a program in where we source all of our food from the Four Sixes Ranch, being it's meat-based, beef-based, you know, kind of a cowboy way of eating. Well, what they did is they started a food program within the independent school district, and the Four Sixes fed that school district. Okay, by doing that, what they saw was improvements across the board in children's health, in children's attention spans, the ADD, everything that we hear, you know, every day as far as the attention spans, as far as behavioral issues, as far as kids, you know, starving. Because in every county, you're going to have poor kids that are undernourished. doesn't matter if you're right next to one of the biggest ranches in the world, you're still going to have poor nutrition and nutritional starvation. And that, and Across, that, school, lunch, that school lunch might be the only meal that that kid has. That exactly. Day. Exactly. So here you have kids, you know, probably eating eggs, probably eating sausage, you know, who knows what no, they really no served milk. up. Real milk. Exactly. Across the board, behavior, test scores, everything improved absenteeism and went down. absenteeism went down and you know telling that story and you look at how those kids improved and we're going a deep dive into there and i'm going to start raising a fuss here pretty quick is if they got rid of that school program because of course you know whatever the powers that be like to you know interject into things that we do locally within our communities but if you look at that and you go in and whenever I was feeding the homeless the last several years, you know, over three years ago, I say I saw the same thing. These people became enlightened. They, they just couldn't wait to be able to eat what, what we were going to serve. And it was always beef, of course, but some type of beef, you know, tacos, something. There was a difference and you can see it instantly how they crave it and how it makes their life better. And if you look at these case studies that have happened and the prohibition against the uh, you know, communities and our civilians across the United States to not have access to that information, well, then you know there's something pretty much, you know, there's a deception going on. There's something that does not add up. Why are they doing that? Why would they take away that power that was given to those children in that school district. What is the rationalization and justification? I want to interject here. Uh, you know, we, we, we see in New York, we've got things like meatless Mondays and meatless Fridays, whatever they're doing. And it really comes from a place of privilege, right? Mm -hmm. if, if, if you are that elite, and I'm not anti-vegan, I want you to have the right to be vegan. Let me be clear. Sure. That's the difference yeah. between what we're saying here and what some of the talking heads out there. I know that's it's fun to to pin yourself. I don't give a shit, excuse my language, about whether or not you want to be vegan. Okay? And you've got all the money to figure out how to piece together all those combinations of foods that you need to piece together to get adequate nutrition, adequate protein. It's not simple. But you have the right to do that. But I want you to think about a child who literally, positive constraint here, if you are given the challenge to nourish a child and you know that you only get one shot, you get one meal to potentially save that kid's life because when they go home, it's out of your control. I'm going to give that kid a piece of beef. I'm going to give yeah. them milk. It's nonstop. 
quickest, most effective way to give them nutrition. We talk about rural America that's often neglected. We've got a story there. I can't wait to share it. We, we, we introduced it in your story the other day when sure. you, you went into harvest, when you went undercover, my favorite part, and what you found in the middle of, you know, agricultural, agricultural mecca of America, pretty much food desert. Yeah. Or you look at some of these developing countries where these folks are, are living on land where the only source of food that can really thrive there is a grazing animal. You can't grow yes. vegan tofu everywhere. And I want you to think about what it takes to, to do that. If, if, if everyone's supposed to eat tofu, well, that's got to be flied in, got to be manufactured. We care about the environment, right? I'm confused. I'm getting really confused as a student here. Huh, how does that work? How is that so green? And how is it serving our children? Because our children are our future. Let's, let's just back out of all the nonsense and the petty back and forth. Mm -hmm. Our children are suffering while we get up here and we want to sound intelligent. And we want to create these complex debates. And it's really not that complex. What it boils down to is what's on your plate. Is it nourishing you in body, mind, and spirit? Is it going to give you the best shot at being a human? 100%. You know, and I, I talk about all the time. It's a sense of entitlement that has a very skewed, <laughs> very skewed sense of idealism that is programmed into most people's heads. It's never because of their Throughout history, no. when we try to get no. idyllic, man, that does not end well. <laughs> no, it never does, man. And, and, and whenever you can get a society, and this is what is going on right now, when you can get a society to willingly, nutritionally starve itself, you've won. You will control them forever. And it takes this sovereign, strong-minded individual, put their damn foot down, and say, I'm not going to validate these deceptions anymore. If you're not going to do it for yourself, do it for the children. And that's what we're trying to get at. That's the message here that we're trying to get everybody to understand. It's like, okay, people say things taste good. Well, nothing tastes as good as pure animal protein. People say that Taco Bell or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Chick-fil-A, just whatever people are eating these days, I don't know. But what if they say it tastes good? It's a chemical manipulation that works with your taste buds to your brain. It doesn't taste good. It's, it's a just, mental it's trick. It's a near, yeah. That's yeah, of course. We come into the world and if you only grew up on the chemically laden food, that's all you know. So the exactly. minute you start tasting real food, and I'm a testament to this, I grew up on country crock. I called that butter. <laughs> um, and, I love it. And for the longest time, if you were to give me real butter, I'd be like, what is this? Today, so butter, oh my God, today butter is like that. That I love freaking butter. We can. Oh, I, I can't. I crave I it. Butter. I crave it. I make it. I crave it. I do everything. I can't wait to consume it. I can't my, wait to just. On my deathbed, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna be eating a stick of butter. <laughs> look at it, and I just want to pick it up and eat it like a an ice cream. Yes. Hundred percent. If you were to grow, up, I'm gonna throw bugs out there because everybody likes to talk about the bugs. You know, if you were uh, in a culture where that was a part of the diet, you would have a taste for that. It's really just yeah. you eat repeatedly. So I'm tired of the conversation about this is more pleasurable. No, it's just that's all you know. That's all you know. You know, it, it's it's amazing. There's a guy, I don't even know his name. I'm not even going to say his name, but he, he has like half a million followers. I just saw it on social media on Twitter the other day. And he was bragging about being, I think, in Stockholm. Imagine that in Sweden and one of the best restaurants in the world. And he was just took a picture of a synthetic 3D printed stick. Yeah. yeah, three synthetic meat. And the first thing out of his post was, uh, it tastes so good. He had no other viewpoint than saying it tastes good. That just so, that's a reflection of our society is where we start with our consumption models, our belief of what food should be, and our, our basically our ignorance. Of what's going on here and it's, if you're going to go into something sure does taste good it's like being in it, a, this is the example i use it's like being in an abusive relationship right 
It's like, right. like donuts taste good. <laughs> You're not going to get an argument from me there. Like, okay, okay no. the sex is good. Wonderful. But yeah. we're gonna beat the shit out of you afterwards, but you keep going back and <laughs> it's a very dysfunctional relationship. It, what a great analogy. You know, it's I want so I want to eat a food that loves me back. You know, we 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 have the, the enjoyable sex and then we have a good time afterwards too. Sorry yeah. if I took this completely into the gutter, folks, but like I don't know I don't know how else to perceive that. That's what it is. It's an abusive relationship with your food. Yeah, hundred percent. You know, and and I I guess this could be a good time or it's not, but I've got to say this, and I've been yeah. dying to say it. You and I have talked about this this year, last year in in the state of Kansas, ten thousand cattle dropped dead, and everybody was like, "Oh my God, what is going on here? What has happened? What is this? Were they poisoned? Were Did they the this or that?" Come in and crop dust. Yes, <laughs> yeah, we had sonic booms from Russia. I mean, all of it across the board, guess what? Those cattle were one step away from death. They were about to get harvested. There was a heat wave that came through. Probably wasn't enough shade. Well, those cows being one step away from death, what does that mean? They're metabolically bankrupt, as we speak about all the time. Okay, you get 10,000 Americans. They're basically the same consumption models that those cattle had to go through, the, through the same chemical companies and grain companies, guess what? 10,000 Americans out in that heat wave with no water or shade, you're going to be belly up just like those cows were. It is a reflection of our society, and it's time for people to wake the fuck up. Wow. We're going to end it on that. There's nothing. I think it's a good one. No, no. Appreciate you, Slim. We'll be back to doing it. Appreciate you, Sean. Here soon. Yes, we will. Bye now. Bye. Hey, guys. What do you think about the cow now? What do you think about the cattle drive? What do you think about what they ate? Are you starting to, there's a puzzle here, isn't there? We're, we're putting that puzzle together and we're going to do it for everybody across there. There's a lot of people listening. We are value for value. We are podcasting 2.0. We have the new YouTube channel up as well. You guys download that fountain app, uh, start contributing. We have a lot of people contributing and I'm going to give a big, big, extreme big shout out because I want to talk about something. Real quick, close this thing out. We announced the Scholarship Trust Foundation, uh, beef an issue. I put up one full Bitcoin. Well, I left Austin probably about an hour ago, and I just uh, did the formal handshake with Unchained Capital. You guys look up unchainedcapital.com. They're going to be a partner of the Beef Initiative, and they're going to help every one of you steward your Bitcoin in a way that is responsible, teaches obligation and ownership. So thank you, Unchained Capital. Thank you, Parker Lewis. Thank you, Connor. Thank you, everybody over there at Unchained, but especially Parker. He's been phenomenal with the Beef Initiative. And what we did is I put up that one full Bitcoin. We've got the Scholarship Trust Foundation going forward. We're going to find a little bit better words. I don't like the word scholarship. But one thing that we do have, we have the first rancher that is awarded that scholarship that he gets to basically give to a scholarship recipient. He gets to pick the curriculum of the education and the person that receives that scholarship. We're moving forward to getting that first scholarship where we can reward it to Jason Rick of Rick Ranches. If you go to the beef initiative, I'm not going any further now until you go to the beef forward slash donations. It's right there on the homepage. It's got a little handout with a little heart out. It's time to start giving back folks. We've made it very simple. I'm not one for ask for things, and this has nothing to do with me. This has to do with saving the American rancher. Look at me in my eyes right now. This is to save the American rancher. We're losing our ranchers. Why is it difficult to do the right thing? Why is it that most people do not understand? I always ask people, help me understand what you don't understand about this. So, anyways, we have that Scholarship Trust Foundation. I'll be announcing it. You're watching this on Wednesday. Friday is going to be major announcements. So you're kind of getting in a little bit of the story of what we're going to do to move forward to steward this scholarship trust foundation. It is secured. We have partnerships. It is the real deal. And we want people to donate. Bubba, he's a friend of mine that started out early with me in, on Twitter. He's been phenomenal. He's always a great networker. What he did, he put up 
mm, 0.2 of a Bitcoin. That's a lot of money, folks. And he gave it to the foundation, trust fund, because he knew it was Jason. He knows Jason. He understands that Jason is an educator. So anyways, he gave, he gave to the scholarship. People are going to start giving to the scholarship. Are you going to come in late? Are you going to come in early? We've got business. We got work to do, folks. This whole next year is about the scholarship. I have three ranchers reached out to me yesterday, getting in line to be able to be part of the scholarship trust foundation. We have to edu educate a whole new generation of generation of ranchers. It's now, times now. We don't have no time to waste. We could lose 40% of our ranch lands. We could lose 60. The average age of a rancher in the United States of America right now is 68. There's nobody filling those spots, folks. Are you going to be eating beef from a different continent? Is, are you okay with that? Because what happens to us? We're all very aware. But what happens one day when we don't have that land? We don't have that intelligence, that beef intelligence. What happens to this country when we're eating foreign beef? And it's so expensive that it's priced out of most people's reach. The market access to good American beef is going to start closing in, folks. We have to save the American rancher. Scholarship Trust Fund. Beefinitiative.com forward slash donation. Thank you, Bubba. Thank you for stepping up. Okay, onwards. So we are podcasting 2.0. What I have to do now, because a lot of people watch my podcast about I Am Texas Slim, the story of Texas Slim. So thank you, everybody. There was a lot of people giving up. So I got five pages here I got to read, but I'm going to do it quick. So bear with me, okay? And listen to these names because they keep on popping up, some of them. Um, we got to 20,000 sats from Ron. Once again, 300 sats from a user I cannot pronounce, and it's a bunch of numbers, so thank you anyways. We've got 19,760 19, sats from Dirty Joy or Jersey Whore. I heard you're on, you're, you're on a no agenda, and now you're on I Am Texas Slim. You're giving back. Thank you, bud. Um, we've got 1,001 sats from Hunters F770. Thank you. Thank you. And then we've got 25,000 sats from Adam C. 1999. I wonder who that might be. Adam C. Hmm. 2,000 uh, sats from at Jink. Thank you, Jink. Appreciate you. Uh, he says, two great minds coming together again. Thank you both. Thank you, brother. Uh, we got 500 sats from Busted Canoe. There you go again. I've seen you before, bud. We've got uh, 5,000 sats from None Your Business. Hey, David. Up there in Washington, man. He, he moved out of Canyon. Now he's up in Washington. Thanks thanks for participating, David. Miss you. Uh, we got uh, 500 sats from KNSV22. All right. Uh, we got, there's Gene Everett again. 25,000 sats. Boost. Thanks for sharing, my brother. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate you. 33,000 sats from Gene Everett again. Here he goes. Um, we've got 2,500,000 uh, sats from Kel. Y'all know who Kel is by now? I think you do. Okay, we've got, uh, once again, we've got 1,001 sats from Hunter's S, uh, 770. And then we have 100 sats from D-Bow, D-Bow. Then we've got 500 sats from TW Cattle. There you are again. 500 sats, TW Cattle again. 3,000 sats, BTC June. There you are, June. Y'all ever look, listen to Texas Slim Media? That's June. Bitcoin and the Sovereign Rancher. Go over to Twitter right now at TX Slim Media. Check out every one of those recordings. I think we're up to the fourth episode. Thanks, June. Appreciate you. Love you, man. Here we go. 25,000 sats from Adam C. again. And then we're going to 500 sats from Busted Canoe again. Then we got 100,000 sats from Gilligan. Here it is. Hey there, Slim. This is Steve in Brandonson, Florida. I just re received my ground beef box from KNC Cattle. Hope to see a rancher in Florida on board soon. Lots of cattle in Florida. Keep doing what you're doing. Hey, guys, we need some ranchers from Florida to step up and get into the beef initiative platform. You know it's open source, don't you? People in Florida are looking for those Florida ranchers. We've got plenty of cattle in Florida. I think they have the second or third most cattle in the United States. Did y'all know that? All right, Florida, time to step up. Let's get you in the beef initiative. Going to have a micro summit? Well, something's going to be announced there. 
at Tennessee. All right, we got a big one here. We got a thousand slaps from J R C N O W A. Okay, hey Slim, it's James. Here's more stats for the cause from Gingerbread Farms, where I raise ducks for my family and neighbors. I also have a large freeze dryer that I use and I would build it, would be willing to run if it would help the cause. I use it to preserve the real food. I grow my family for my family, but it has a lot of idle time that it could be working. Let's work together and make this world a better place with real foods. Okay, let's look up Gingerbread Farms and give him a big old hello from the Beef Finished and everybody that is a producer. In the you guys are producers too, right? Then we got 5,000 sats from a user that has way too many numbers in it. It really don't matter, but what they say, keep the story of Texas Slim coming. You betcha, we're going to do that. Puts everything you're doing in context. Hey, guys, I am Texas Slim. Are you? We'll see you next week. <laughs> you're going to get to hear about Tennessee. Did y'all get tickets? Hope you did. It sold out. Hmm. Scarcity. You ever heard of it? Love you guys. Take care.